Good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host Emily Dieter and today I'm once again at Macquarie. Sorry, I feel like all of my um, interviews lately, I'm always at the lovely Macquarie University. So today I'm interviewing my boss, Adam Dunn, Dr. Adam Dunn. So I'm not going to ask any hard questions. Sorry, he's smiling at me and making me laugh. Um, so Adam is Senior Research Fellow um, at the Centre for Health Informatics at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation, where I work as well. He joined the Centre for Health Informatics uh, nine years ago and he did his PhD at the University of Western Australia in computer science. And he did, I only just learned this this morning, modelling how bushfires spread. So it's a little bit different today because Adam is a computer scientist, not a public health person, but he works in computational epidemiology. Welcome, Adam. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. What first got you interested in computational epidemiology? And maybe you could explain what that actually is. Well, computational epidemiology is, in its most basic form, picking up new kinds of data sources and trying to make sense of them so that we can use them in practice, in epidemiological practice, so in public health and all sorts of different things. And how is that different to normal epidemiology? Because I feel like that's what we do. We use data like that. What kind of, what, how is the data different? Well, a lot of the data that we use is much messier than the kinds of data sources that you might be used to. And we always think that our data sources are the messiest and the most difficult to use. It's not always true. But if you think about it, some of the data sources that we've been using in the last three, four, five years now... Oh, examples. I like it. ...include Twitter, include other forms of social media. They might include web searches. Um, one of the interesting examples that they used recently for influenza was actually one called Open Table, which is about restaurant bookings, and they showed that you can use um, the data so- the data from restaurant bookings to help predict when people have influenza. Really? Yeah. Who did that? Uh, I don't remember. It was someone in the United States who showed that you could, uh, when you added Open Table data to Twitter and some other data sources, you actually improved the models for predicting influenza spread. Oh my God, that's so weird. I'm going to look that up. Yeah. So, what first got you interested in computer science? Like, why did you want to become a computer scientist? Well, um, wow, that goes a long way back. Uh, when I was probably around 10 or maybe younger. Oh my God, um, you knew at 10? I I accidentally opened up the back end of a computer game that I was playing um, when we were running, that was running in DOS. Um, and I realized that I could program in what was a language called BASIC. And so I accidentally um, learned how to program my own computer games when I was about 10. How did you learn that? Because like, I don't, wouldn't even know if I opened a back end, like, it, I wouldn't know what that meant. Com- completely by accident. And then I, and then I started playing with robotics and le- Logo and all sorts of other languages. And then uh, when I went to university to study science and engineering, computer science happened to be some of my favourite subjects and I really enjoyed doing algorithms. So when you say programming and asking for all the public health people, because we find that word terrifying, even though we do different kinds of programming and some statistical um, packages, but what does it actually entail? Like, what does programming mean? When, it, when you say it to me, and I work with you now, so I'm a little bit more comfortable with it, but I think we shy away from this whole computer side of life. What does it actually mean in simple terms? Well, let me, let me tell you a story instead. Okay. How about that? Uh, so when we have people send us CVs, often when they describe um, the languages that they know, they'll say things like, I know English, I know Italian, I know Java, I know C, I know Python. What's C? 
C is a programming language. Okay. And so if you think about um, programming languages, they're just a way of, of writing down instructions. That's all they are. Just There's in a different language. Yeah, it's nothing complicated about programming. Uh, uh, and to be really honest, most example. of programming is just Googling. He's putting himself down. He does that a lot. That's not true. He has a lot of expertise. Um, so at the moment, I'm working on a grant with you. Um, so maybe you could tell us about the project or the grant that you're working on and what you hope to achieve from it. Of course I can. So this is an NHMRC project. And I suppose the best way to explain what we're doing is to go back to where we started. So in 2013... Uh, we were looking at these um, new sources of data. So a lot of the work that I'd done prior had been around um, data-driven research that took advantage of bibliographic databases like PubMed or PubMed Central, um, you know, those sorts of different um, structured data sources that we can access, mostly because it's easier to access data than it is to access people. And so we started playing with Twitter and we thought, what would be something that would be interesting to do in Center for Health Informatics um, that uses Twitter data, since we have this amazing sort of large scale data source that we can access. And so the, my postdoc at the time, uh, Susan, she said, well, we should have a look at vaccines and we should have a look at HPV vaccines um, because they're an important one. And I sort of thought at the time, oh, that, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't sound like a useful, important thing to do at all. <laughs> And, um, and so we did. So we started searching for a bunch of keywords um, on Twitter uh, related to HPV vaccines. And we've been collecting that data ever since. And we found that if we were looking at these things, there was lots of interesting stuff that was on Twitter. There were lots of people expressing their opinions and their attitudes about HPV vaccines. Yeah. And so our several years and several papers later, we sort of discovered that there was a lot more that we could do with um, social media data, especially Twitter data, um, to understand how people's opinions and attitudes are characterized and expressed uh, online. So we wrote a grant, uh, and by we, I mean me and uh, Julie Leesk from the University of Sydney, and uh, we were lucky enough to convince the NHMRC that they should fund research to look at um, using Twitter and other forms of um, large-scale, unusual data sources to try and understand the attitudes and opinions of people over space and over time. And so what we do now is we try to understand the, the prevalent attitudes and the prevalent opinions in particular places. That might be a state in the United States, a county in the United States, it might be a city in Australia, it might be a region in Australia. And the idea behind the grant really is if we're able to understand and assess the attitudes and opinions that people have in particular locations and particular times, we might be able to do a better job of trying to help public health organisations make sense of, of um, what they need to do in order to address problems, uh, in particular hesitancy and refusal in vaccination. And so now we're expanding beyond just doing HPV vaccines to all sorts of different kinds of vaccines. And eventually we'd like to help understand health behaviours generally um, by understanding people's attitudes and opinions in relation to those. So really trying to provide extra information to health departments that they can use like in the process of trying to help public health. Yeah, that's right. Um, the other thing that we do, of course, is besides the practical part of it, is to understand human behaviour at its kind of core. So how do people, um, how does misinformation spread online? How do people um, uh, adopt new attitudes and new opinions? How do they change their opinions over time? Do they change their opinions over time? How are opinions clustered based on um, who talks to each other? 
how does people's uh, information diets in relation to the kind of news that they watch or the kinds of TV shows that they see or the kinds of things that they read and share mm. um, relate to uh, the, the population level outcomes for those locations? Mm. Sounds like a good grant. Well, that's why we're doing it. <laughs> uh, so what sort of first got you interested in public health? Because you sort of do sit a little bit across... Both. I mean, I know you're not a public health professional, but you know you're doing computer science, and then one day you just went, "I think I want to get interested in public health." Or what happened? Well, I, I think public health is kind of the natural, um, um, practical space that I work in. Um, so really, I I have very broad interests, uh, including understanding human behaviour, including understanding how evidence works, including understanding how we translate research and, and clinical evidence into practice. But how was that first introduced to you, like as a computer scientist? Like how do you hear about public health? Uh, by accident. Okay. Uh, Is that so, a story? <laughs> so, so many years ago now, and, you, and when you introduced me, you told, reminded me that, that it was actually nine years ago that I joined Kai. Um, I was... I originally came over here to work with Farah Magrabi and we were working on um, the safety of workflow processes in hospitals using agent-based modelling, um, which is an interesting and kind of strange thing for me to move into since I was doing landscape ecology just prior. Um, but what happened was uh, by working in the centre, and this is a centre that does all sorts of different research from large-scale health analytics on electronic health records to patient safety to modeling the entire healthcare system, to all sorts of different things. And one of the things that we had been doing but hadn't done for a while was looking at public health. And I suppose just by absorbing everything that is happening in health systems research and health services research, I was kind of exposed to the, the idea of doing stuff, doing work, doing research in uh, a space that would support or help public health. And so you kept going? By accident. Well, you're doing a good job. Thanks. He's my boss, I have to say that. <laughs> um, so we were talking before the podcast um, about um, your career trajectory because I was asking about what you did before your PhD and you said that was too long ago. But as our hopefully main audience is sort of young people coming through the field, maybe you could give us a bit of background because you've had a bit of a not necessarily a straight line career. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's definitely accurate. Well, I mean, in a sense, it was straight line since I've not done anything other than academia, so I've never had a real job. But um, it certainly has been varied in terms of discipline. So I started my... my uh, academic career, I suppose you'd say, um, doing an honours in cryptographic algorithms. Um, and then I... I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, it's kind of maths. Okay. Uh, and um, and I, I really love the idea of, of an avalanche. So I don't know if you know, but in, you know when you try and encrypt something, you give it a, a bunch of text... And on the outside, on the other end of the text, you get this garbled mess, and that's so people can't interpret what you've written. Uh, yeah, I do. I do know that exists. I don't know how to do it. Okay. Well, the whole point of that is that if you change one little aspect of it at the start, and you feed it through this box, the cryptographic algorithm, then on the other end, half of the half of the, the letters on the other end, or half of the bits, or half of the characters on the other end, are completely different. 
And so there's this, this idea of avalanche, the idea if you change one small thing over here, you get a huge change on the other end. Oh, like the Butterfly Effect movie. Exactly like the Butterfly Effect movie. So that's what you were working on? So I was working on that as an honours student, and I love the idea of complex systems research. And complex systems research is really about the butterfly effect, where you can have a, make a small change here, and it has a huge effect on the overall system. So I was interested in complex systems as a research topic. And strangely enough, um, modelling the spread of wildfires is actually a complex systems um, project. And so I was doing a lot of maths, physics and computer science all at once to come up with a modelling formalism that would help us be more accurate when predicting where bushfires would spread. Oh, that's really great. What did you find out? Did it work? Uh, it was a PhD, so I found out very, very little. Uh, <laughs> and um, so, so I was relatively young when I started university and I was relatively young when I finished my PhD, so I never really had a, a, a long... Um, kind of career of other uh, work and I was relatively naive about what I was meant to be doing. I'd never even moved from the same city I was in when I was born. After that I started doing work in landscape ecology and so part of my job there was to model the spread of invasive species, animals, plants, those sorts of things and also to understand uh, or to try and estimate which locations in the southwest of Western Australia or the south coast of Western Australia we should buy as conservationists in order to improve the biodiversity around the the south coast of, of Western Australia. That was that was my job as a landscape ecologist. I had no idea you'd done all this interesting stuff. That's amazing. <laughs> so I was officially the um, Alcoa Foundation Conservation and Sustainability Fellow um, at Curtin University. Um, Alcoa Foundation is not Alcoa, the company, it's a foundation. Yeah. Anyway. And... Um, and so I was doing that, and I, I'd written a couple of papers. Um, I didn't really have a very stellar career at all. In fact, it was, it was by today's standards, very, very poor. Um, but I was still young and naive, and I happened to discover that there was a position open um, at uh, University of New South Wales uh, with Farah McGrabi doing agent-based modelling. And so I thought, well, that sounds like fun. And um, Farah seemed really nice, and they seemed like they wanted me over there. So She is really nice. She is. So I said yes. Um, and I came over and did agent-based modelling. And you know what? Strangely enough, the same processes that we think about with cryptographic algorithms and the avalanche in the, in the, in the codes and ciphers, is exactly the same as modelling wildfires and the spread of wildfires, and is exactly the same as modelling uh, invasive species spreading through a landscape, and is actually exactly the same as um, errors that propagate through workflow processes in hospitals. And so actually, even though I've had a very multidisciplinary um, career, I would say, I still model the exact same things that I used to back when I started when, in my honours degree because I'm still modelling the spread of misinformation, attitudes and opinions through um, a landscape and or a social network and through communities. And now you're doing it for public health. And now I'm doing it for public health. So I hope you don't mind me asking this and we can cut it out if you want me to. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to touch on is that you do put yourself down a lot and that's coming from someone who also puts himself down a lot but I think you've got me beat. Um, you were saying when you applied for a fellowship, you only had one paper or something. So can you talk a bit more about that, if you felt comfortable? No, 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 that's, that's absolutely fine. Um, so I, when I finished my PhD, I had um, one conference article published from my honours and one conference article published from my PhD. Um, 
my career at that point was not exactly the same as what you'd expect of people these days. And I actually, I think about early career researchers and I think about um, the inflation of requirements that's needed in today's yeah. kind of atmosphere. But you know, it's it's not, it, it's one of those things that I, I feel like we need to do more in this space to understand how to give people um, opportunities uh, to, to live up to their potential. Yeah, why do you think it's changed so much? Is it just funding's getting more limited? Because I agree, I feel like the expectations are constantly growing. The expectations are constantly growing. I don't think it's necessarily a change in the funding. I think the inflation comes from above. So if you think about, let's say I'm applying for a promotion from a senior research fellow to associate professor, in order to demonstrate that I'm at the level of an associate professor, I have to show that I'm producing at least as much as another associate professor. But of course, the associate professors are also trying to demonstrate that they're producing as much as the professors. And so, of course, the people who are research fellows need to demonstrate that they're producing as much as I am. And the people who are postdoctoral research fellows need to demonstrate that they're producing as much as the research fellows. And then the people applying for jobs to become postdocs need to demonstrate that they're at least as good as the ones that came before them. And it becomes harder and harder and harder every single year. Do you have any solutions to this problem? Yeah, I think we need to be smarter. Yeah. I think we need to be smarter when we um, uh, employ people. I think we shouldn't be looking at things like counting up the number of publications that people have. I don't think we should be um, trying to take these shortcuts and understanding who people are and what they can contribute as, as researchers uh, in public health or anywhere. Uh, I think we actually have to read what they're doing. We have to understand their skills and we have to support people um, not based on how many papers they can write per year but what it is that they actually do yeah I like that idea so my next question also might be a little bit um, maybe not personal but um, I guess I wanted to talk about what keeps like what drives you to do this and I guess I hope people can tell from our back and forth that I'm actually very comfortable with Adam and he's a very good boss like so you're a very supportive boss who just wants to see the people like you know they are working for him grow um so what drives you and like what why you do you keep doing this you work very long hours why it well i mean the reason why i like the people around me to to grow and to do well uh, is purely selfish the the better you do the better i look that's as simple as that but you know it it uh he doesn't mean that that was his way of joking Totally true. Just keep going. <laughs> so, say the so real I, bit now. Uh, so, the, so it, it is true. Um, most of the work that I have that I've sort of done in the last five years has been to support early career researchers. Um, it's a it's a big issue that I think is really important, one that we need to deal with carefully. Um, and so, I don't feel like I can do a good job of supporting early career researchers everywhere else if I can't do it for my own team. Yeah. And so, there's some things that I value in the work that we do in our little group. Um, and the work that we do in the Centre for Health Informatics, and that is to, to make sure we promote and celebrate diversity, um, not just in disciplinary backgrounds, but all sorts of diversity in the people that, that work um, with us. Um, but also, uh, I suppose I've, I've, I've had an interest in early career researchers for a long time. I used to look after the, the postdoctoral academy over at UNSW for a little while. Um, I spend all the time doing uh, evaluating fellowships for Macquarie, um, sitting on panels for promotions for early career researchers, and those sorts of things. Uh, 
I can't say that it's... I mean, the, the reason why I like looking after early career researchers is because I know just how hard it is. Um, mm. And I feel like because I'm relatively young for where I am, uh, it means that I probably can understand a little bit more about where people are coming from. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Good answer. See, the right one was good. <laughs> um, so another thing, I'm sorry, I just know you too well, so I'm asking you questions that I wouldn't ask normal people. Um, but before we started, you were a bit nervous about coming on this podcast. Um, but again, why are you doing it anyway? Because you made me. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> Say really. No, I mean, it, it's important to, uh, it's the same answer that I had before. It's important to, to help people who, and help people understand what they're facing as an early career researcher. And so I think that anything I can do to help make it easier for early career, early career researchers and kind of mm, mm, allay their fears a little bit about what it means to be a good early career researcher. Uh, uh, you know, I, I certainly had a, uh, a slow build in momentum. Um, I'm, lu- I'm very lucky now that I have a relatively stable job and I'm quite happy and I'm doing the work that I love to do. But uh, I understand the risks of, of being a, choosing to be an academic and you know, we hear every every week or two we hear another story about someone who's left academia and, and talking about how yeah. hard academia is and how it's um how much happier they are after they left or how bad it was. Oh, you listened to one things. of my last interviews. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um but you know, uh, academia is a incredibly rewarding um um, job and you know it's true I mean I, I do work a lot of hours um, and it can be very hard but I always think about it in terms of the how lucky I am you know I get to spend my days talking to some of the smartest people in the world uh, doing things that no one has ever done before and if I choose to take on a new adventure or a new risk, there's no one stopping me from doing that. Yeah. I can still do that. And so that's the reason why I live academia and I live my job. And it's the thing that I think about before I go to bed and as soon as I wake up and what I do all day. And I don't think there are many jobs in this world where you can do that. That's true. That's very true. Um, so I just want to jump back a bit and think about as a computer scientist, what can we as public health people do to better work with your field? Because they are a bit different. Well, a lot different. So what would you want from us as public health people when we come to you? You know, I, well, I've been thinking about this question for a while. I'm not sure that I have any really good answers. You know, one of the things that we do in, in the Centre for Mathematics really well um, as, a, as a group is that we do a good job of spanning... Um, people who have clinical expertise and people who have computer science expertise. Uh, You can't just get a brilliant computer scientist and a brilliant clinician and stick them in a room and expect them to do good work. You really need to to have those um, bridges. And by a bridge, I actually mean a person. You really need people who can speak both languages well and who can communicate across those divides. And so I actually think that one of the things that we need to do in this space, in between public health and computer science, is to build capacity in this research area we call computational epidemiology. So if we can train people who are, who are already good 
in public health to be reasonable in computer science, or we can train people who are really good in computer science to be yeah. reasonable in epidemiology, then of course we start to build this capacity where people can talk to each other more effectively. And if you really want to do something useful in public health that will have outcomes for the real world, you have to be able to, 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 to bridge that gap in communication between those two fields. It's not as easy as it sounds. Yeah, no, I agree. No, that was a really good answer. And finally, we'll leave the book to last. I know you're really excited about that one. But what's your, what are you most proud of? Actually, no, you can choose. Either what are you most proud of or what advice would you give to your younger self? What advice would I give to my younger self? You know what? I'm going to skip the advice because I have no idea what I'd tell the younger, my younger self. Okay. I would probably just let me end up doing exactly what I've done because okay. I feel like the mistakes that I've made probably left me in a good place. Oh, stop it. That's a really good but, answer. Um, but the one thing that I'm most proud of uh, is really that I am able to help people who are you know, in more junior positions than I am now, um, excel, be happy, um, learn, expand their, their ideas. Um, and I try to do that without mansplaining too much. You never mansplain. <laughs> I, I do a little bit. Um, but I think that the one thing I'm most proud of is really that, that I, that I now have a position where I can, can, can truly support and help people grow into their potential. Um, and I try to make sure that I do that without um, uh, telling them what their potential is and letting them discover it for themselves. And I feel very lucky to be able to, and fortunate to be able to be in that position these days. Well, you should be very proud of that because you are good at it. I told you I was going to suck up, guys. He's my boss. Such a suck <laughs> Okay, and finally, uh, a book or movie or something that's inspired you or changed the way you've thought about the world? Mine's too easy to guess, though. Is it so The Alchemist? Because that's mine. No, the obvious one uh, is the Foundation series by Asimov, which I have doubles of. I don't, I don't even know what that is, so that's not the obvious one. So, uh, so Asimov wrote the Foundation series, and it was about a mathematician um, who went to a conference and presented a piece of work um, in mathematics, uh, and it formed the basis of uh, a new field of research called psychohistory. And psychohistory was about using information about society to predict the future. Is it really technical? Could I understand it? Yeah, of course you could. Huh. Uh, it's a, a series of very long books. Um, oh, and it how spans long? an entire galaxy. <laughs> okay. And uh, about 50,000 years. Okay, I might need to put it on my long-term reading list, but I'm glad you told me about it. But yeah, it's a mathematician who became very famous. Um, and uh, even after he died, he was still in, in affecting the, the future of the galaxy. Why did it change the way you thought about things? Uh, psychohistory is what we're trying to do. I don't get it. I feel like I'm going to have to cut this bit out. What do you mean, psychohistory is what we're trying to do? So psychohistory is about predicting the future using information about society. Oh, so we're trying to do that. Yeah, of course. Okay, I get it now. Yes, and this is how our meetings go. He has to explain a lot to me because I'm working with computer scientists. <laughs> well, um, I feel like this has been a very informal interview. <laughs> yes, it has. But um, I think you've made some really good points. And, um, yeah, thank you for joining us. Is there any last words of wisdom you want to send out to the world? No. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening.